0: Trigger warning, this reading contains stories about abuse towards adults and children. We also discuss suicide. My name is Cece, and this is a story about abuse, motherhood, and learning to break free. This is not my story. This is a story I tell in my mother's words. In this episode, she discusses the situations in which she attempted to leave, and I find it to be really interesting to hear more from my mother's perspective regarding therapy considering the fact that she was in school to become a therapist i thank you for listening and here we go This next section is titled on why women stay revisited from what I have heard in conversing with emotionally abused women from what I have read and certainly one of the main reasons that I stayed with my abuser as long as I did was hope of his changing I didn't want to divorce him I had to for my own emotional and spiritual survival I was close to death my esprit almost non-existent I didn't want to divorce him I just wanted him to be nice to us I remember talking to my sister-in-law, one of his brother's wives, on Father's Day when we had all converged at his parents' house. The two of us were outside on a swing, and I turned to her and said, I don't mind sharing my money with him, and I don't mind sharing everything with him, my life, my children. All I ask is that he be nice to us. I don't even care if he works or not. I don't care if he goes out drinking with his friends. I just want him to be nice to us, and he's not. He's cruel to us, to me and to the kids. It's really bad. That was several years ago, and I had already come to expect less and less from him. I certainly demanded very little from him by that point, which is what most women do. We begin living increasingly independent lives, taking care of all our children's needs, taking care of the house, the cooking, the shopping. In my case, the bills, which is an alternate means of financial abuse. Most emotionally abused women are not permitted to be involved in money matters whatsoever and are given a dwindling allowance for managing the household. They are forced to ask for money beyond this meager allowance. We even began taking an increasing amount of care of the abusers themselves for that is their ultimate goal. We will be solely responsible for taking care of everything for them, making their lives exactly as they want. They want us to painstakingly remove the distasteful rind of life, exposing and offering to them the sweet fruit of life. We are trained. We are lower animals. Through the use of punishment and intermittent rewards, and through the fear of being hurt emotionally and physically. We are beaten into submission, expecting less and less from the relationship and from life. We are emotionally battered back into our own place, that collective place that has belonged to the female of our species for thousands of years. Yes, we are allowed to work now, many of us, as long as the place of business meets with his approval, and we don't start bringing those co-workers, those outside influences, home with us. Work is work, but when working hours are over, it's time to come home. And we know what that means. Time to work at home. We need to make up for those hours wasted at work. There is so much to do around the house, the kids, and all these variously scheduled extracurriculars from sports teams, games, and practices, dance, and music lessons, etc. The cleaning, the cooking, the washing, the shopping, and the remembering never to complain. For life around an abuser must be tension-free, sweet, and perfect. Any stress or complaining or even sharing of problems that we have encountered must be carefully hidden from his sight, for he simply cannot handle it. He is too fragile from being wounded by other men, competing and fighting for their fair share of the blindingly finite goods and rewards that life has to offer. We must lick their wounds for them, and that too is our place as women. We are the nurturers, aren't we? That's the way it's always been, hasn't it? It is natural for a mother to nurture her young, to protect her offspring at all costs. Protecting an adult male, nurturing him, appears to be a conscious choice rather than a natural act. Adult females want a life partner, a mate defined as an equal, one to share the pleasures and pains of life. Women no longer expect to have to obey their husbands, common law nor legal. History has been fraught with the required submission of women, primarily because men as a whole are endowed with a larger muscle capacity and often with larger physical frames than are women. Might was right, so to speak, or at least that was the way it was. Historically, men have made the decisions, made the rules of the world and of individual societies, of communities, of their families, Historically, women have been made, forced to abide by their rules without question. History has collectively left us with a problem to solve. As civilization continues to advance, it becomes clear that might is not necessarily right. The age of intelligence has proven that the future of our species, male and female, lies in the ability to control, not other people, but our minds. Our very existence as human beings is now defined by our spirits. Our essence lies not in the bodies, but in the intangible force that we have named our spirit. The health and evolution of our spirit will define our future as the human race. The truly brilliant minds, those who have served to shape our race in a positive direction, have repeatedly proven the subordinates of the body. Brilliant minds reside in male and female bodies equally. We, the human race, dare not to discount and beat into submission fully half of our mental and spiritual power women who leave their abusers consciously know this women who have not left yet unconsciously know that they are not being allowed to be fully human women in abusive relationships become very aware of the purpose of their existence to fully and freely live to take control of their own lives so that they may try to fulfill the master plan that has been scribed into their souls their spirits and their essence no human being has the right to control any fellow human Yes, we need laws to protect ourselves from the aberrant of our race, those who, for whatever reason, choose to infringe on the rights of others. Beyond this exception, we have an obligation as a species to strive towards evolutionary perfection. In our great collective effort, we must assist one another in becoming fully human. We must encourage individuality and questioning of the status quo. Our evolution is infinite. We must work together as a race in striving toward a future marked with less emotional pain, less spiritual diminishment. If we are to experience an evolutionary improvement, we must nurture our individual spirits so that we may collectively nourish our humanity, encouraging a healthy evolution in a positive direction. This next section is titled, On Being Secondarily Abused by Therapists. We, as therapists, understand the fragility with which most clients can come to us. In my early days of seeking help for myself, I would literally emotionally drag myself to a therapist's store and such psychological pain as to be intolerable. During the course of my marriage, I went to five different therapists, two women and three men. The first one approached a doctor and leading psychologist in the community. I sought seven years into the marriage, I remember the timeline vividly as I recall aligning the timing to the age-old cliché of the seven-year itch. What I was experiencing went far beyond an itch, however. I was living in daily pain, an identified pain that I had been begun treating with nightly glass of, or two of champagne. I remember thinking that I needed the champagne to go to sleep as I necessarily functioned at what I termed 90 miles an hour in order to get everything done. By that time, I had resigned myself to asking literally nothing from my husband, trying to live as independently as possible and attempting to shield him from any imperfections of life itself. He had successfully trained me or brainwashed me to think of him above all else so as to make his life experience as near perfect as possible, which I did so as to avoid his wrath. I was going to use the word punishments instead of wrath, but he himself referred to his reactions as wrath, so that is what I will use here. By that time, I was avoiding his wrath at all costs, which meant handling everything, literally everything for him and for the family, save his going to work when he chose to, which he did use as an intermittent reward for me. Anyway, despite the application of champagne, I was unable to go to sleep at a decent hour, and partly because of the champagne I was unable to sleep through the night. As therapists, we know that inability to go to sleep usually signifies anxiety— whereas waking in the early morning hours, 2 to 3 a.m., and not being able to return to sleep usually signifies depression. I was anxious and depressed and becoming increasingly exhausted and therefore easier for him to control. When I dragged myself to the first female therapist, I had already resigned myself to the fate of my marriage with no hopes of leaving. Besides my learned helplessness and traumatic bonding to my abusive partner, He had threatened to ruin me financially, to slur my name, and to harm the children in me physically if I ever tried to divorce him. Yes, I had attempted to leave before. With these resignations, I approached the first therapist and talked for 50 minutes straight. There was a lot to tell. The only contributions she made came at the end of the hour. Why do you need this guy? My response, I don't. I love him. With that remark, she closed the session and told me to schedule a second appointment. Feeling embarrassed, ashamed, and not understood, I paid my $85 and scheduled another meeting which I never kept. I did not feel abused by this woman. Embarrassment and shame kept me from returning. Somehow, hearing myself verbalize my life with this man sickened me and not seeing divorce as an option, a theme I saw her pursuing, kept me from returning to her for help. I think if she had said, I understand. You are verbally abused. This is a classic case. That's why you stay. I can help you. We can work through this together, and you will come to understand. I think then I would have returned. If she had recommended Patricia Evans' book, The Verbally Abusive Relationship, or her book, Verbal Abusive Survivors Speak Out, and told me to schedule an appointment after the readings, I think then that I would have returned. I hope that I would have. One can never predict one's reactions. Perhaps I was not yet ready to finally leave. I was very weak emotionally at that time, but I know that this psychologist should have responded to my situation with at least these minimal attempts at interventions with me. Looking back, I think she was unaware of the dynamics of verbal abuse and was therefore unable to help me. Secondary abuse feels like being thrown off balance. It's confusing, takes you completely by surprise, and is deeply wounding. Like in secondary abuse to re-injuring a physical wound before it is completely healed. The second injury is actually more painful than the first. When you are secondarily abused, there is no question, no pondering about whether or not something constituted. Secondary abuse, you feel it, and the pain takes your breath away. So it was with my second male psychologist that I consulted, also a doctor. I thought very highly of him, and I did accredit him with being able to help me leave my abusive situation. He is the doctor to whom I took my son when he was feeling suicidal. This man did tell me that I was being an irresponsible mother by keeping my children in our described family situation with my husband. Together with this supposition, he explained to me how I was letting my emotions lead my life rather than my intellect, which was why I would throw him out when he had done something really terrible, or when all the lesser things had added up to an intolerable situation when I was angry. Then, when my emotions had calmed down, when I was feeling sad, remorseful, and sorry for him, I would let him return with the mere promise of changing. Really, really changing, this time. This made sense to me, and my son's depression convinced me that I had to leave the marriage, my children safely, with me. I was at that point when I went home and unemotionally told my husband that I wanted a divorce. Most women do master the courage to leave when they see their children grossly affected or in danger of physical abuse. Not all leave immediately, for a safety plan must be in place, the majority of women being murdered after they have left when the abuser continues to act on his most grievous threats. Most women do make the final decision to leave and act on it when they feel they are at their safest moment, which is usually during the honeymoon phase of the cycle of violence. Adding to the indecision of leaving, this phase of the cycle is when it's hardest emotionally to leave, for this is when everything is actually going well. As I said, I attributed a lot to this psychologist for helping me to break free emotionally, as he explained that I really had no other option if I were to be a good mother, an identification that I desperately desired. Months later, I went to this therapist and asked that he testify for us, "'explicating the abusive actions of my husband that he himself had witnessed in his office. "'My husband screaming at me, threatening to ruin my name and bank accounts, "'then throwing open the door and rushing out. "'I felt certain that the doctor would recall the incident "'and or that he would have recorded the incident in his notes. "'In my face-to-face meeting with him, the doctor agreed to share his notes with my attorney "'and to testify if the notes were not sufficient for my case.' My case required proof of abuse so that my little daughter would not have to go with him on weekends, holidays, and summers unsupervised, a stipulation that I refused to relinquish. As my court date grew closer, some seven months following my personal request to this therapist, I suggested that my lawyer phone the therapist to inquire about the promised notes and follow-up call. I'll never forget the feeling when my attorney shared with me the doctor's alleged comments— something to the effect that we should know before we subpoenaed his notes in his time that what he intended to say would not benefit my case. Though I have not directly spoken to this therapist about it yet, my attorney relayed to me that he was going to testify that my son's suicidality was not because of my husband, but rather because I kept taking my son out of the situation and then putting him back into it. Further, in my husband's words, I was a mean drunk and the fighting was half my fault. Interestingly, I have since learned that "mean drunk" is a very common term used by abusers to describe their wives and girlfriends. I believe rather than a complete fabrication, this term represents yet another instance of projection. In disbelief, I was certain that my lawyer had not understood the therapist correctly. He assured me that they had conversed at length and that he understood the therapist's position. As is common with an life-altering experience or realization, I will never forget where I was, what I was doing, and how I reacted and felt in that moment. I was standing at a payphone in a certain mall and had just hurriedly finished my lunch so that I could return my lawyer's page. As he spoke, I became dizzy and nauseous, wishing for a chair from which to complete the call. I felt deeply wounded, betrayed, and confused. The lawyer continued. He said the best he thought he could do for you was to get you to quit drinking. The sentence reverberated inside of my head and then seemed to pound through my body like the cold steel ball of an old pinball machine, leaving me breathless and internally beaten up. My thought was that the abuser had reached him too, threatening the therapist with a lawsuit or worse. My husband had been a runner for a powerful law firm in the city, and he allegedly had a lot of blackmail material from which to draw, gaining cheap support and free advice from some of the more ruthless and unethical attorneys in the area. I presumed the therapist was resisting testimony that could cause him great grief and possibly cost him his reputation, for he too had witnessed a small dose of my husband's wrath. I had heard my husband threaten others over the years, a terrorist act that had gotten him his way to my knowledge each time. I could be wrong about the supposition of threats to the therapist. Like I said, I've yet to confront him on the matter. As I increasingly gain emotional strength, I streamline and refine the questions I will pose to this man. I harbor no ill will for him, and I think he was doing the best he could at the time. He may have even been honest with my attorney, a more important reason for scheduling a visit with him. He may be better equipped to assist others in situations similar to mine. Numerous studies have attempted to determine the reasons women remain in battering relationships, or leave them and then return. Arising from an existential viewpoint that all persons are in charge of their own lives, that they are the products of their own choices and consciously decide at each moment the directions their lives will take, the question becomes, why do so many women return to battering relationships? Having seemingly decided to end the relationship while in the hospital or police station and hiding at a family member or friend's house, why do women return? Should we treat this more as an addiction? The similarities are remarkable. The question then becomes, how much free will do we actually have? If one adheres to the medical model of addictions being a disease, does an addiction to relationship become a disease? A disease may be defined as some uncontrollable negative aspect of life, detrimental to the body causing possibility of death. Intervention can help. Let's compare the cessation of smoking with the cessation of a relationship. Ending smoking is usually quite difficult, not only physically, but psychologically as well. One is bonded strongly by biological factors in smoking. Women who leave psychologically abusive relationships do so when they have hit rock bottom, when they see no alternative but to leave to escape death. Same with physical addiction. We are told we sometimes must hit rock bottom, personal rock bottoms, which span the range The stronger the psychological attachments, the harder it is to quit both. So should we treat this relationship as an addiction? Stay completely away from him. Don't hear his voice, see pictures of him, don't see his handwriting. Train your mind not to think of him. When it comes to mind immediately and consciously think of something else. The embedded question is how do we break the attachment that cements this relationship in so many ways? By interviewing these women for my dissertation, we may come to better know their story. Although each relationship has unique qualities, what are the common themes for these women? Do they have vastly different problems to contend with that we aid them in solving? These women are the ones who may or may not present to private psychotherapist's office, but it is unlikely that they will show up at battered women's shelters or police stations or any other community facility. Instead, these women try to help themselves the best they can, remaining silent to all but their private therapists. They may read self-help books in an attempt to cope with their situations, but how closely does the material they read speak to their situations? I suggest studies fail to understand and address this particular need and fail to advise them concerning the very real problematic situations in which they find themselves." A note to consider, most studies indicate that economic independence contributes to the likelihood of women leaving abusive relationships. Within the specific subset of economically independent women, what then become the most important factors which enable women to both leave and remain free from the abusive relationship? That completes the second notebook, and we're moving on to the last one. This one is, starts with a title that says, On My Own Healing. I remember vividly the day my cousin came to visit me. She lives in a town about one and a half hours from my own, and though we live fairly close to each other, our face-to-face visitations are few, both of us having families, jobs, and extracurriculars with our children. We, two used to be close and connected. My spending summer weeks with her in another state as we were growing up, Though we do not phone each other often, our communications are deep and meaningful. So it was with this visitation which came at the depth of my depression, the time just prior to finding the therapist who would help me to begin my healing process. Although it is a very long story, let me say that my husband and I actually did get together, back together a few months after the gun incident. My children, the older two, had been on a motorcycle and had been hit by a car, the night that truly constituted the worst night of my life. That night, my daughter and son were then taken by an ambulance to the best trauma unit in the city, my daughter being a code 2 and my son being a code 3. Code 4 is dead. My daughter fared pretty well as she was thrown from the bike, but the car had hit my son's left leg, pinning it between the car and the motorcycle. As the motorcycle skidded forward and sideways, it carried him headlong into a curb, necessitating brain surgery." The trauma unit sent teams of surgeons into the operating room throughout the night. This incident brought my husband and I back together as we stayed with our son around the clock in intensive care for six days. This incident did encourage me to let him back into my house for the sole purpose of caring for our son. But this abuser, seeing a small opening, took full advantage of the opportunity, pouring on the charm and goodwill, reverting to the mask that had originally captured my heart. This incident did not change my mind about the divorce. My son was in a wheelchair throughout the summer. Three months later, my husband developed acute leukemia, which brings us to the day of my cousin's visit for the following spring. She and I were in my kitchen, sitting on the bar stools, when I began to cry. I am not me, I emotionally contended. I am dying. My spirit is dying. I had always been the strong one, helping my cousin through situational depression and physical illness, encouraging her and assuring her. I had always been able to pull myself out of any psychological upset. I recall saying that, in contrast to my husband, who very often had a bad day, I never had a bad day. Bad things may have happened, but I would get over them, especially easily, choosing to look at the bright side of every situation. My personality had bespoken optimism for as long as I could remember. This was different. I found myself unable to pull myself out of this depression. Life to me at that time was too complex. It overwhelmed me. Only days before her visit, on that spring morning, I had dragged myself to my medical doctor, having experienced an arthritic pain in the extremity of my right hand. The doctor, observing my posture as I slumped in a chair, explaining my situation, unhesitatingly declared, You're depressed. No, I'm not, I retorted. I think I'm more anxious rather than depressed, considering all that's going on. He spoke briefly of antidepressants and anxiety medications. I reluctantly accepted the small white prescription sheet on which he had scribbled a 10-day trial of BUSPAR, which I promised him I would consider. Yes, I had developed arthritis, ultimately concluding to be a somatic symptom of my depression. This discourse with my cousin helped me to hear myself. I had told her that I felt my spirit dying. I was almost gone. I'm not me. I shared with her that I felt I could not divorce my husband as I thought it would kill him, literally. Literally. Yet he had removed his charming mask again, exposing his true evil and controlling ways. He called my older daughter names that he had previously reserved for me alone. She cried and swore that she would not phone him again in his hospital room, nor would she go to visit him. She called me crying about his persistence in being mean to her, a persistence that each of us experienced. I felt like I was being torn in half psychologically, wanting to support him through this complicated and life-threatening treatment, yet wanting to demand from him outward signs of respect—a demand I knew I was was a near impossibility for him. I had organized a blood drive for my sick husband. I had hired for him the best doctors who utilized the latest methods developed by the leading cancer clinic. I had dropped out of the doctoral program so that I could see him through this ordeal, having promised him that he would not go through it alone. My every spare moment was devoted to his well-being and comfort, visiting him anywhere from 2 to 24 hours on all but two days of his seven-month inpatient-outpatient hospital stay. I had given up my life for his and was literally responsible for saving his life, yet his verbal and emotional abuse towards us continued. At this time, three months into his treatment, I dragged myself to my second male therapist's door, he asked me, if no one ever knew only these four walls, would you rather be married or divorced? Taking no time to ponder, I replied, divorced. I didn't feel that I could morally divorce him at this time, however, thinking he required my strength for life itself. My therapist's assignment was therefore to question the children as to whether or not they were actually taking his abuse as hard as I thought they were. My son said no, and that he had learned to ignore him years ago. My daughter agreed with her brother, though the pain in her recent tears and in her voice resounded loudly in my mind. I took little comfort in their negative responses, viewing my query as yet another form of intellectualizing what he that what he did was okay. Anything he said was okay. It was not. Perfa- perhaps the fact that we had all rallied round him, forgiving him his past once more, once more believing him when he told us that this time he would change. I was an existentialist, after all. Facing one's own mortality carries with it the potential for profound change. He could redefine himself, rewrite his script with the main character having a change of heart, a change of spirit. He could be the loving father that our children had always craved. He could be the understanding and supportive husband, the man I had first fallen in love with years ago. He said he would. A question that my brother-in-law, my husband's older brother, Posed to me one night, the night that I completely stopped talking to my husband, rang so true as to be the turning point in my situation. Have you ever seen a leopard change its spots? I stopped, my teary monologue paused, with a new sense of strength, answered his rhetorical question. No. He was not going to change. Perhaps he could not change, did not want to change. Who was I to impose my possible, impossible to achieve demands on him? Hadn't I given him enough time to see the light, enough chances with my variety of ultimated therapists? It was at that moment that I emotionally answered my own rhetorical question. Yes. That night I gained a new strength, the calm and determined strength that accompanies the assurance of having made the correct decision. My spirit was not to die, and I needed the strength to fight for the lives of my children. My children needed their mother back, the strong and beautiful woman who had brought them, innocent and trusting, into the world. The realization of my long-term absence, my dying spirit, and those of my children sickened but no longer immobilized me. Summoning the necessary emotional detachment, I intellectually reframed the dissolution of my family, together with its hopes and dreams that I had clung onto for so long as an objective problem to be solved. I knew that I faced no simplistic problem. I had to declare a war. As with external affairs, where one country or another finds itself in the midst of a raging war with very little warning, I realized that the war had already been launched without my knowledge. As my husband's life motto was, Expect the Unexpected, it echoed in my head. I acknowledged and shared my brother-in-law's fear. I'm just afraid you'll buckle under on me emotionally. Not this time. There was too much to lose, and I knew it. Consciously and unconsciously, with every fiber of my being, I knew it. The instant intensity of the realization of what had to be done, of what I faced ahead, caused me to gasp. I choked on the negatives, choked back the fear, and breathed in deeply. I filled my lungs with strength and courage and determination. I will not buckle, I said, I promise." Though it may appear strange to an outsider, one who has not experienced verbal and emotional abuse, those words marked the beginning of my healing process. My personal low, my near spiritual death was marked by a lifeless depression, an absence of physical and psychological strength, my determination to act, to launch an offensive, my ability to stand up for myself once again, my only means of survival culminated in the return of my true self. My mother discussed two really important traumatic moments in my life. One of them being when my brother got his head injury on that motorcycle accident. I must have been about eight years old when that happened, and I remember I was at my house, and my brother and sister got on the motorcycle to go down the street. And true to my style, I was like, you need helmets, you need your jackets and your pants. Whenever I was on motorcycles when I was a kid, I had to like be in full denim, my little leather jacket, helmet, gloves, everything, all the protection. And 20 minutes later, they didn't come back, but all I heard and saw was a million sirens and ambulance lights and cop lights and They had crashed, literally, at the end of our block. And I was home alone at that point, with them being in that accident. My brother's friend that lived in the neighborhood came over and was like, stay inside. And I remember that being the scariest thing to me because I knew something had happened to my brother and sister, and nobody ever really took the time to explain it to me. It's like when you're young and everybody tries to hide everything from you and make everything seem okay, which my family did a lot of the time, especially with the abuse from my father. That was a moment when nobody really told me how close my brother was to dying. And I do blame that head injury when he was 15 in that car accident. So if he was 15, then I was eight. was a huge contributor to his impulsion and to his eventual suicide. Um, head injuries are very well known for increasing your chances of suicide. So that was a very traumatic thing for me to hear my mother's uh, very simple rendition of how that went how that went down. And then the second thing was her describing her leaving my father or trying to when he got diagnosed with leukemia. And that was, again, one of the scariest things I ever witnessed because he was in the hospital for a very, very long time and was having like bone marrow transplants and seeing him go through that, like I was forced to go to the hospital a lot to visit him and to comfort him and when he would come home, Like, when they would allow him to come home for a few days or a couple of hours uh, during his treatments, he was a monster at my house. And I remember very specifically him overdosing on the floor of my mom's bathroom, and I was the one that found him. He had a heart catheter, and... If I remember correctly, they said that he had, like, tried to shoot speed into his heart catheter. And I don't really know the accuracy of that, but that's how I remember it. It obviously explained to me many years afterwards. But seeing him on the floor so sick and, I guess, so fucked up and having to call 911 on him was, like, also very, very traumatizing. And the fact that he perpetuated being ill and not being well, even when he was, like, on his deathbed from stage 4 acute leukemia was scary and crazy to see in person. So, I remember my mom had, like, tried to leave my dad when my brother got hit by the car on his motorcycle and I remember she had tried to leave my dad right before he got diagnosed with cancer, which she stayed with him through the end, you know, and um, he did eventually get better and go into remission. But I feel like the describing of how she was treated by therapists was obviously a sign of the times. And although therapy has a somewhat negative connotation and people don't necessarily have such a positive a perception of therapy. I'm so relieved that that has become more accessible and that stigma has changed at least in the past couple of years because I know of a lot of accessible therapists and people that are in therapy that find a lot of wonderful things that come out of it and I'm so happy to hear that my mother was finally able to find a therapist to help her get out of her abusive relationship. So this next episode will be the last one. It's going to be a little bit longer. And I always say thank you so much for making it this far. And we'll see you on the next one.